turn to our scripture reading for this morning. Pastor Bill will continue preaching for us uh, through the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. I'll give you a couple minutes to turn to that as well. Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and let his, laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. And his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me begin today just with a little bit of a personal update. I had a friend ask me this last week. She says, is it working? She said, you asked us to pray two weeks ago that you would be a good patient at home, that you would let Sally serve you, and that the two of you would grow closer together. So how, how's that going? Have, have, have you been good? Have you behaved yourself? And I said, I, I think so. Um, you should probably really ask Sally. Any of you can feel free to ask Sally. Um, she's put in a ton of work this last week just caring for me. Um, definitely been a change for us at home, but I, I think we're growing closer through it, uh, continuing to do that. And so I want to thank you for praying. I want to thank you for those of you who have reached out and for uh, the meals that you've sent. We have felt extremely loved and very, very, very supported. On the physical side, very briefly, I have regained a lot of my mobility that I lost. I can walk again, which is really exciting for me. Um, Sally now lets me go around the block by myself. Uh, the, it was a really exciting day the other day when I went to the second floor of our house and realized I hadn't been there for a while. Um, there are some ongoing issues that if I let them get to me can be discouraging and I wear out really quickly, but overall this is really, really much better uh, compared to what I had and so I'm very, very grateful. And it makes me very grateful to live in this country in this time period. Uh, I've been talking with a friend who, about a week before my procedure, he had an accident and snapped the top of his femur, had to have his hip replaced. And so we've been talking together uh, as we're both recovering. And in between the jokes, I, I challenged him to a race. I, I said, I'll be on my cane, you can be on your walker. But in between the jokes, uh, we've been reflecting on just how good this is. Um, 
to be able to have something that has not been available to the vast majority of humanity throughout the world. And so we've been talking about how amazing the gift is that we are permitted, but we're also talking about how there's a responsibility that comes with that gift to use it really well. A place that I often go back to in my own life is that one where Jesus says, to whom much has been given, much is expected. And to whom much more has been given, much more is expected. And when I hear Jesus say that, I, I don't hear that as a burdensome, weighty, guilt-ridden, uh, guilt-inducing kind of a thing. I hear that as a call. And I hear that as a call to use well what I've been given. I, I hear it as a sobering reminder. See, if you think about it, if, if we got all of the rest of humanity together, stretch all the way back through time to the beginning of humanity, go around the entire globe, all of humanity comes together and looks in at us, in this country, in this time and place, they would say to us, to you and me, regardless of your individual circumstances, you are the 1% of all of humanity. Probably more likely you're the 0.1%. That you and I are at the very top in terms of the advantages of people who have ever lived. Now that should not produce guilt. You did not ask to be born in this time and place. You did not ask to be given the mental, the physical, the financial advantages that you have. It should not produce guilt, but it should sober you that you have advantages that others never had. Advantages that God wants you to use as fully as you possibly can as you reflect him on this earth, as you image him to the people that are in your family, as you image him to your friends, the people you work with, as you image him to the students in your classes, as you image him to your neighborhoods. And it's things like getting a surgery that very few people in the history of the human race uh, could think about having. It's those kind of things that make me reflect, to take a moment and to think a little bit more of just how much God has given and of how I want to use all of his gifts uh, to see his kingdom move forward in whatever way I can. So again, thank you for praying. Please keep doing that. But please also join me in feeling some of the weight so that you also have that thing inside that says, no, I, I want to use my gifts and my advantages as much as I possibly can as well. Secondly, before we dive into the passage, I just want to add my urging to what Luke said earlier, that you would join us Friday night as we talk together as we seek the Lord regarding a potential building for us as a congregation. We shared a lot of details. Last Sunday, we included a lot of details in the minutes that we sent out. The details are important. Please pay attention to the details. But remember, those details sit within a larger framework. And that framework is that one vision. The session believes this is a property that could potentially really move us forward in our vision of planting multiple congregations. And it would be sort of the start for us as a community from there to go outward. Second, this location would provide a diverse el element, a unique element to our presbytery as we continue to try to reach the people in this region. So please keep those two things in mind as you're thinking, as you're praying, vision and how we would complement our sister churches in the area. And as you keep that in mind, as you continue to reach out and talk to us, we've had several people talk to us already. Uh, we welcome that. We want to hear from you. That's why we're not keeping this quiet. 
Uh, we've had good conversations. We have, hard, have had some really hard questions, and those are good. We want to hear that. We understand we need to hear uh, from everybody. So please continue to do that this week, and then plan to join us, if you can, Friday night, as we talk a little bit more together, and especially as we pray. Okay? Turning to our passage. We're wrapping up our series in Mark today for a little bit. We're going to pick this study back up next year. But next week, we, as Luke said, we're beginning our missions month, and so we'll begin our mission month series for the most of November, and then after that, we're in Advent already. This week, we're in one final passage of Mark that brings everything to a sharp point for someone who follows Christ. Where is Jesus? Jesus is still in a geographical region that's less Jewish. He's on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a region that is more Gentile, and it's here in this predominantly pagan environment that he quietly, really, really quietly reveals to just a few people, to his guys, his true identity, who he is and why he came to earth. Now, this question of identity, who is Jesus, that's been in the background for the disciples for a while now. It first came out very clearly in chapter 4. Jesus calmed a violent storm at sea. They're astonished, and they asked, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is their question, and it's what Jesus has been trying to show them ever since they met him. So he called them to follow him. He called them to be with him. And so they've had this opportunity to see him up close and personal. They've heard him teaching. They've asked him questions. What did you mean when you were taught those things? They've watched him heal and perform miracles. They've seen him express his heart to express his presence here on this earth. They've watched how he's handled the criticism that he's gotten from the religious leaders. They've seen all that. And yet here we are in chapter 8, how much later, months, maybe years, and they still haven't gotten it. If you recall, we left Jesus two weeks ago passionately pleading with them. Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? The answer clearly is no. They don't yet understand. <clears throat> they still don't see. They don't see who he really is. They are spiritually blind. They're blind to the nature of the person who's in front of them. And therefore, they are blind to something very important about the whole rest of the world. If you can't see the God who made the world, who made the world to show you what he's like, who made the world to be a reflection of his own character, his own nature, if you can't see him, you can't see anything that he made the way it truly is either. It's all connected to him. It all reflects him. It all shows him. If you can't see him, you can't see things that, as they really are. It's not, it's not that you're not going to see anything, but you won't see them clearly, and you won't see them fully. And that means then that you're not going to live well. And so we have in this passage physical blindness. We have spiritual blindness back and forth. Now, there's an unexpected difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. You kind of expect them to be similar. There's one very, very, very big difference. When you're physically blind, you know it. You know that you can't see. 
You can't see things that others can, and you know that you need some kind of help so that you don't run into the things that other people see. Otherwise, you're going to end up hurting yourself. You might end up hurting the people around you. When you're physically blind, you're aware of how dangerous the rest of the world can be. Spiritual blindness is different. Spiritual blindness blinds you to the reality that you're blind. You're blind to the way the world is, only you don't know it. And so what do you do? You blunder around. You do what you think makes sense, but because you don't see correctly, you end up doing things, saying things, thinking things that end up hurting yourself, and they hurt other people around you, and you're just confused. You can't figure out why the world doesn't work like you think it should, or why your best efforts always seem to fail. It's a little bit like being in a dark room, one that is so dark that you literally can't see anything. It's a room full of people, it's a room full of furniture, it's a room full of obstacles, walls jutting out, maybe some things in the floor that are at different levels, but you can't see any of that. You don't know it's all there. And so as you start to move around, you're doing what? You're randomly banging into people. You're banging into things. You're tripping. You're falling down. You're bruised and uncertain. So then you start to think, well, maybe I, I should just sort of shut down, pull back, don't really put myself out there. Or other people, they have the opposite reaction. They get frustrated and just sort of plow ahead even harder. You don't know what you're supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? And then here's the experience that you have. Every now and then somebody grabs you. And you don't realize that they have night vision goggles on that they actually can see, and that they can see you're really about to hurt yourself. And so they're trying to protect you. But since you can't see that they can see, it just feels like what? Like they're getting in the way. Like they're keeping you from something good, keeping you from something that you want. So you fight against them, pull away from them, try to get around them, not just because you can't see, but because you can't see that you can't see. That's what spiritual blindness is like. And it's against that backdrop that the heart of God is on display in this passage. Because he doesn't want you blind to reality. Doesn't want you hurting yourself. Doesn't want you hurting the people around you. And he want, doesn't want that so badly that he left heaven, this place where everybody around him could see. And he came to enter a world where no one did. A world where everyone had lost their sight, and he did that in order to open blind eyes, not just physical ones, he did that. But he came to restore spiritually blind eyes so that you and I could see spiritually. That's what you see him doing in today's passage. And as he does that, he's going to show us two things very quickly this morning about what it means to regain your spiritual sight. First, we're going to see that there's a process to this restoration. And second, that there's a key to that process. Just two points today. That there's a process of restoration and a key to that process. First, the reality that there is a process to having your spiritual sight restored. This passage is all about seeing. The New Testament scholar James Edwards points out that in verses 23 to 25, just three verses, there are nine times in the original Greek that a word is used that refers to seeing. Eight of those times are completely different from each other. Now, what's that tell you? It tells you that the focus of the passage 
is about seeing. It's all about this man who goes from seeing nothing to seeing partially to seeing fully. It's all about seeing. But it's set within this larger context in which no one sees in the spiritual realm. And so Jesus asks his guys, verse 27, who do people say I am? And they tell him the exact same things that we heard earlier in chapter 6 from the crowds and from Herod, that maybe he's John the Baptist come back from the dead, that he might be Elijah or some prophet. They have a lot of answers, a lot of speculation. None of those answers are right. They're all shots, shots in the dark, and they all miss. The crowds don't see. They're spiritually blind. They're not alone. Herod doesn't see. The Pharisees don't see. The disciples don't see. They still don't see or hear or understand what is so obviously true about Jesus, that he is God come in the flesh to rescue his people. And so this passage is about a man who is physically blind, who lives in a land where everyone is spiritually blind. And that's a clue as to what we're supposed to learn from this. That this physical miracle is telling us something important about the spiritual realm. And you remember that God does that, right? He shows us things that we're familiar with in order to teach us things that we can't see visibly. That's the first clue that this miraculous healing has deeper implications, that's got something to do with spiritual sight. Here's the second clue that that's the case. It's how weird this miracle is. This is the only time in all four Gospels where we see anything like this, where Jesus does not completely fully restore someone in an instant. And it's also the only time where Jesus seems to anticipate not fully healing someone. He asks the man, verse 23, do you see anything? It's like he's not really expecting the man to be completely healed, which is odd because we know that Jesus can heal, that he can do so completely in one go. We've already seen that. You think, well, maybe blindness is a special case. Well, no, in chapter 10, Jesus will heal a blind man in one shot, so it's not like blindness is harder for him to cure than other things. So then, why? Why does Jesus introduce the concept that there could be a process in recovering sight. Clearly, it's not for his own need. He doesn't have to do it this way. But it's also not for any faceless, nameless crowd out there. Verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. It's not for the crowd because there isn't any crowd. Doesn't seem to be any real need in this man that Jesus follows up on that is specially addressed by him doing this. Which leaves what? Leaves the disciples. And it makes you wonder, is there something here in this man's healing, in the way that he's healed, that's important for them? Think about what happens immediately afterward. Verse 27, Jesus talks to his guys where? While they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now you start to hear something that sounds like parallelism here. Jesus led the man outside the village so that he was alone with him. He talks to his disciples as he's leading them outside the villages while he's alone with them. 
think there's something going on here. The two accounts are parallel. Keep thinking about the details a little bit more. He takes the man gently by the hand, asks a question. He gently starts asking the disciples questions. Now, Jesus has not asked a person before that he's healing a question as he's going through the process. And a rabbi does not ask a learner a question. That's supposed to come the other way around in that culture. Learners ask the rabbi. So what's taking place here? Jesus is leading, not just the man that he's healing. He's leading the conversation with his disciples. He starts very gently. He says, who do people say I am? Let's not make this too pointed. Who, what, what's, what's the scuttlebutt out there? Then he gets more pointed. Verse 29, he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And it's at this point that Peter, speaking on behalf of the rest of the disciples, says, you are the Messiah. That's who you are. I get it now. We get it now. You're the anointed one of God. You are the one who was promised long, long ago, the king beyond any other king. You're the one who will restore Israel. That's who you are. And Jesus basically says, you got it. You finally see. Your eyes are now open. You get it. And that's what's true of the disciples. They actually see something that is true that they've not seen before. Their eyes are open, and yet they're not fully open. Jesus goes on immediately to tell them, now that you know who I am, here's what I've come to do, what I must do. Not what he'd like to do, not what is going to accidentally happen to him, not what he's going to fall into because circumstances just sort of take over and are out of control, but what he must do. He uses that word must twice. He tells them what he must do, and Peter's response is to rebuke him, to say strongly, no, <laughs> that's not what I said. I said you're the Messiah. Weren't you listening? You're not someone who has to die. That might happen. You might die trying to rescue us. But you're going to try not to die, right? Because that's who the Messiah is. He's this powerful, triumphant leader who's victorious. He's not somebody who gets rejected, who has to be rejected, who has to suffer, who has to die. What's happening there? Peter really does see you're the Messiah. But he sees partially. What he sees is distorted. Spiritually, it's like he sees people that look like trees walking around. He hasn't yet fully seen like he has to see. He has the category right. Jesus is the Messiah. He has the content wrong. He defines Jesus in ways that Jesus does not define himself. Peter hasn't fully recovered his sight. And Jesus is trying to tell us something here, that this is what it's like as we recover our spiritual sight, that it doesn't happen all at once, that there is a point in time when it really does happen, that you really do see something clearly, but that you don't see it as clearly as you need to, and that that process of seeing more clearly tends to happen as a process. It's this realization that the categories of how you've been taught to think about the world get in the way of seeing what you have to see spiritually. 
that none of them, none of the categories, the categories here are what, prophet or messiah, none of the categories are adequate to contain the reality of who God actually is. They're not adequate to contain what he's doing in the world. And so all of the world's categories, all of the ways that you've been taught to think come with assumptions about the nature of reality, and Jesus has to enter into that and help you see beyond that. What's that mean? Practically, it means that you and I cannot be content with what we've seen of Jesus, the one who made everything in this world to reflect his glory. Instead, you need to be passionate to keep growing, to keep studying, to keep learning. If you think that you have now arrived in some way, that you now fully see Jesus as he is, that there really isn't a whole lot more for you to see, more that you need to see, if you tend to think, you know, reading scripture, that's, that's kind of optional. Being in community with other believers, talking about who God is and what everyone else is learning and how that helps you learn, that's optional. If you're thinking something like that, something that you do, if you have, you know, a little bit of spare time on your hands, you haven't yet realized how little you see. Think about it this way. Is it possible that you and I could ever come to the limit of seeing and comprehending the infinite almighty that at some point we will have completely downloaded into our minds everything that there is to know about him and therefore we will understand everything that he has made to reflect his glory perfectly put it that way you realize well of course not we hardly know the depths of the people that we live with how could we know the depths of the god who made those people in his image we should expect to keep having eye-opening experiences with christ our entire lives extending on into eternity we have to have the humility to believe that even if we could exhaust eternity we will not be able to fully see the one who holds eternity in his hands i was talking with a young man this past week who probably needs to have one of these eye-opening experiences. Not that he hasn't seen anything before, and not that he hasn't seen well what he has seen, but he needs to see more than he has seen. And I was telling him that that is my experience, that Christianity is, is kind of like a door into a house, and you open it up, and it's a nice house, it's welcoming, you step inside, you start to walk around, you explore it, you get to know it, you're actually excited, you're finally inside the house, you're no longer outside looking in. But then on a regular basis, every few years or so, you come to this door that, that you've never seen before. And you open the door, and suddenly you're inside a room that's bigger than the whole house was a few moments ago. Has incredible kinds of things in there. You step into the room, and you start to understand what's going on there. And you start to wander around and realize, oh, this is Christianity. That's what all that meant. And then you start to think, well, wh wait, what was that that I was pursuing and understanding before? That's also what Christianity really is, but you didn't see as well as you now see. You saw Christianity partially. Your sight has now been more restored than it was previously. People look less like trees. They look more like people. What I told the young man, I said, I've come to expect this. I've come to want it. 
to continue to see more and more clearly. That's one of the marks of a disciple. Jesus keeps leading you gently by the hand to show you more and more and more of what it is that you need to see. So point one, there's a process to having your sight restored. Point two, there's a key to that restoration. And that key is that you are learning to see Jesus more and more as he is. And the way that you see him, him is that he has to touch you. Now again, with the blind man, it's physical touch, spit and his hands. With the disciples, it's a spiritual touch. In other Gospels, when, Jesus, when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus responds to him and he says, this has not re been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but it's been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You don't get to see because you decide now to see. You have to have a spiritual touch from God so that you can begin to see, so that you have that first partial opening of your eyes. And you have to have then Jesus teach you who he is. And this is why there is no room for arrogance among Christians. Because we didn't open our own eyes. We rely on God touching us, opening our eyes, and we rely on God now teaching us through Scripture, through His Spirit, what it is that we now need to see. And so Jesus does that, verse 31. He teaches His guys that He must suffer, Jesus must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days rise again. And he's telling them, this is the kernel of who I am. This is the heart of who I am. It's the heart of his identity. And telling you about the heart of his identity, he's telling you about what is of primary importance to him, what is uppermost in his mind, what has moved him from heaven to earth, and what drives him now that he's here. This is the essence, God fleshing out his heart so that you can see it. Get this wrong. Don't see this about him. Don't see how important it is to him and to everything that he does. Get this wrong, and you get everything else wrong as well. Because you won't see what is central to him as being central to you. And you won't see it as central to everything that you do. And then you won't see how he actually connects with you in your need. I was talking with another young man this week. He was telling me an insight that he's had. He's got a new job, and this job is very good, and it's revealing, now that he's getting a, high, a bigger paycheck, just how greedy he really is. How he knows that all that he has comes from God, but that he has no interest in giving any of it back to God, and he doesn't want to tithe. He knows that he should, but he wants to hold on to as much of his paycheck as he can so that he can buy the things that he wants. And he said something to me like, I know I should do what's right, that I should tithe, but I just don't want to. I know that God promises me comfort in heaven, but that seems so far away when I can buy comfort right now. And he went on, he's like, this is part of religion that always sounds so off. He said, it's like, oh, hey, you'll have comfort later, so it doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable now. Just give away all of your money and you'll be fine. Now, do you see how he thinks? He thinks that the gospel is primarily about what? It's about the future. That it guarantees him heaven, but that it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what happens right now. And so I'm thinking, while he's talking, he doesn't see. 
He doesn't see that Christ's suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection have anything to do with how he lives his life right now. How can I help him see? How can I help him see what he has to see? And so we went back and forth in a dialogue. I said something to him like, hang on a moment. Let's think about that. Is it really about later only and not about now? Is that what our faith really is? It's this long-term rescue after we've lived our lives here. I mean, do you really think that you can go through life right now thinking about how to maximize your individual comfort and not have that bleed out into other areas of your life? Do you really think that you can elevate your desire for comfort in the area of money and keep it safely contained there? That it won't leach out into these other areas. That it won't affect how you think about your girlfriend. How you treat her. What you expect from her when you give to her. That you won't think in terms of your own comfort when you interact with her. You really think you can keep that contained? Or that you can contain comfort to areas of money, not have it affect all of your relationships, interactions with your family, your other friends. That you won't start to live in every area of your life looking for how much comfort you can get out of it. That went home. So I kept going. I said, see, this is where the gospel is. It's not about the future. It's about rescuing you right now. God knew that greed was deep inside of you. That's always been there. But you didn't know it. You didn't have a whole lot to be greedy about. And so it didn't have an opportunity to actually show itself. But it was there anyway, that desire to be stingy, to hold on to what you have, to only use it for yourself. To eval evaluate all of your interactions, all of your decisions, based on how much you can get out of something and whether you're actually going to like what you get out. God's always seen that in you. And he knew that if he left it there, that desire for more and more and more and more and more would keep you from him. So what did he do about that? He chose your need over his own comfort. He chose to suffer, to be rejected, to die, to pay for your greediness knowing that even in this moment you'd be trying to figure out how to get more out of him than you ever give to him or to anyone else. Knowing all of that, God worked overtime to pay even more than what you're trying to hold on to so that right now in this moment he could forgive you when you can't stop wanting more regardless of how much you have. And he didn't have to do that. He owns the whole universe. lost my place I'm sorry he owns the whole universe what's he going to get out of this do you really think that sending him a check right now is going to do anything for him <laughs> that it's going to buy him off that he's going to look at your few dollars that you toss to him and go ah, okay yeah I guess now we're even he doesn't need your money he didn't do this to get something out of you but there is something that he wants. He wants to be friends with you. And the only way that he could do that was to get rid of what stands between you and him. And he thought that that would be so good for you that he was willing to pay a cost that you can't begin to add up. 
He put your need in front of his own comfort, getting nothing out of it except the chance to love you, to give you what you really had to have that you could not buy for yourself. I told him, sit with that for a while. Sit with that. Realize right now in this moment, he's moving towards you. In this moment, he forgives you. Let his heart melt your own. Let him put inside of you the kind of love that he has for you. And then when that has happened, do whatever you want to with your money. Because in that moment, if you decide to write a check, you're not going to do it out of guilt. You're not going to be trying to pay him back. You'll write it out of love in response to his love. Do you see? If you don't live out of the gospel, you're going to have to live out of something else. That's why who Jesus is is not simply central to Jesus. It's also central to you. It has to be. If my friend does not respond to love, love that softens him so that now he wants to love, he'll still act. But what's he going to act out of? He's only got left over some miserable combination of duty, responsibility, maybe arrogance, probably rebellion. So either he'll refuse to give it all, to not see all of life as a gift from God, so that when you give, you're now acting like God would act that you're becoming more godly, that you're taking on more and more of God's heart, of his character, in the way that you live. My friend could refuse to give, reject growing into a full image of God, a reflection of a radically giving God. He could refuse that, which will then affect all the rest of the areas of his life, not just the financial ones. He'll become a calculating, hardened man, always evaluating if he's getting enough return for his investment. He'll either refuse to give at all, or he'll give out of some twisted motivation to stop feeling guilty, or, or out of some version of self-righteousness so that he can think to himself, you know what, I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. I'm charitable. That will be giving, kind of, but he'll still be calculating still looking for a return of some kind, trying to buy a good conscience rather than receive a clear conscience from God, trying to build a reputation in his mind rather than having himself being a child of God being his reputation. None of those will lead him to being an open-handed, open-hearted, self-forgetting kind of person who just loves freely like God loves him. He won't have the kind of love that God has. Instead, he'll love others to get something from them. He'll end up trashing his life in the present moment. This is why Jesus must suffer and die and be killed before he's resurrected. He does it to love, not because he's looking for something from us, but because he's looking to give something to us. <laughs> the pleasure of being with him. The pleasure of being with someone who is so filled up with love, he doesn't need us to love him, but he offers us that opportunity. That's why he must pay the debt we cannot pay. It's why he must rise from the dead so that he can put his life now inside of us, so that he can put his love inside of us, so that we can now live and love like he does. Lord Jesus, do that. Come, open our eyes more than we've ever had them opened. Let us see you 
more fully, more clearly, more beautifully. And Lord, don't let that be a perspective for us. Let uh, that be a relationship with you. A relationship, Lord, where we sense your goodness filling us, where we give ourselves out of that goodness that you've given to us. Lord, would you do that now for us? In Jesus' name, amen.